Welcome to the Agile Wire. Brought to you by Wisconsin Agility. We want you to get agile and stay agile. Now here are your hosts, Jeff Bubbles and Chad Byer. And we're recording. All right, kick us off, Jeff. All right, we got Jim Highsmith joining us on the podcast today. Jim's one of the co-authors of the Agile Manifesto. He's been doing this for many years, and he's got a new book out called The Wild West uh, to Agile, The Adventures in Software Development, Evolutions, and Revolutions. So we're going to dive into the book, Jim. But I, um, the one question that like I'm kind of dying to like know is, <laughs> is really about the Agile name. So I've heard this story and things get twisted. I know it was like 20 years ago. And I can't remember what happened 20 years ago in a conversation <laughs> or a vacation. But like, so I, the, 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 the phrase I remember somebody telling me one time is that um, the reason we didn't pick a different word instead of agile was we were thinking about adaptive as maybe one of the words is because we didn't pick that because Jim would have got all the business <laughs> because you had a book out <laughs> with the, that word. You had different things out that, you know, your consulting company had that word in it. Like people were like. Yeah, Jim's going to steal all the business. We got to pick a different word. Is that true or is that just like <laughs> folklore at this well, point? Well, as you say, things get twisted around. And what happened was after we'd done some initial going around the room, and I can talk about that later, one of the things we need, we wanted to do was to pick a what, what we're going to call ourselves. And because Alistair Coburn in particular didn't like being called a lightweight methodologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so we went around, and as far as I can remember, we put 15 or 20 words up on the board. And Agile was one of them, Adaptive was one of them, Flexible was one of them. You know, there are a number of words like that. And I guess lightweight, I'm not sure if it made it or not. And then we started eliminating. And and we whittled them down. We, we liked this one, or we didn't like this one for a particular reason, and we take that off the board. And I actually took Adaptive off the board myself. Because I said we we shouldn't we shouldn't have a name for something that reflects that it's the same as somebody has put has on their methodology, mm-hmm. and so you know I'm not sure at what point I did, but I and 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 that actually reflected I think the part of the aura of that particular meeting is that we were both competitors and we were collaboration. And for that particular meeting, the collaboration won out. Uh, and we all went off and, and were more competitors. But even then, we did a lot of working together on things. And so there was a word that was thrown around a lot more the, during that period of time, which was coopetition. Yep. We both cooperated and we competed. Yeah. And both of those things are important. And, and that, 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 that meeting was more of a collaboration. Yeah. That's yeah, awesome. That's funny. We use that same word. So Chad and I are both professional scrum trainers of scrum.org. And we use the same thing because we're all like as PSTs, professional scrum trainers. We're separate companies, separate you know entities. But like we all come together to work on like building that community and right. you know staying in sync and helping each other out. So it's like a lot of co-opetition. Like we are competitors, but we also help each other, you know, yeah. collaborate. Yeah. And I think that's a... That's an important part of the Agile movement. Actually, there's another movement that does that did a lot of the same things. It was interesting. Uh, I, I read this in Walter Isaacson's book on the development of, of the stem cell, not stem cell, but of the uh, oh gene gene splicing. I'm sorry, gene splicing. Okay. And that there was a bunch of, of uh, 
scientists who collaborated intensely on that gene splicing science, at which which enabled us to do or enabled them to do the COVID yep. vaccine so quickly. Yeah. So if they hadn't co- cooperated, it wouldn't have done that. At the same time, they were all rushing to publish before the other one. Yeah. So it's some of the somewhat of the same kind of collaboration, but also competition. Of course, mm-hmm. the money was a lot more uh, important during that one because there was fa- big pharma was For in. For sure. It. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because we remind ourselves like so. Jeff and I are also business partners, and it, sometimes that that scarcity like principle like mindset kicks in in your gut, and you feel like, well, wait, but if I help this person, you know, it's there's not enough business to go around, and you have to like. You have to like take that little demon off your shoulder and like brush it away because like if you slow your brain down and think about it, it's like, no, if we enrich the community, it's good for everybody. And you know it after you think about it and pause, you know it. But sometimes, right, that kind of fight or flight response kicks in and you're like, oh, if I share these secrets with this other consultancy. So it's funny. We get challenged, I think, like Jeff said, all the time in the scrum.org community because we're we are competitors, but we're collaborators. And so it is that, I mean, that word co-opetition right. has been thrown around, you know, in our circles as well, so. Yeah, yeah. And, and one of the things, you know, during the manifesto meeting, we actually talked about the fact that hopefully what would happen is we would grow the pie yeah. so that everybody got a bigger slice, mm-hmm. you know, after the fact, so rather than have a small uh, market. Yep. And have a have a bigger slice of a small market. Have a bigger market, and each have a slice of it. And that's that's really what happened. All, all as you well know, the the scrum folks got the biggest slice. But yep, yeah, for sure. <laughs> there's plenty of room for other folks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We tend to we tend to always quote you know the loose somewhere between eighty and ninety percent of all things agile. Like someone's gonna use a scrum term at some point. Like it just you know it's right. it really took off like crazy. All right, I have I have one more question. We don't have to sit here and talk about the uh, manifesto meeting forever, but I I have a a question too. I was joking with Jeff. Like, did you guys actually ski? Like, yeah. how, did everybody ski? <laughs> oh no. Okay. <laughs> uh, Al- Alistair and I skied, and and I, Martin skied, and I don't remember who else, but I, I know at least the three of us All skied. Right, awesome. And I, and I've actually got a picture of uh, Alistair and I on top of a ski lift. Oh, nice. Oh, that's awesome. No, I just, I always think, you know, we're trainers, so we tell the story a lot, but we weren't there. It's always just, again, what you've read in books. And, and so whenever we tell the story, it's always funny when you're in- introducing someone to the, to the Agile Manifesto, you're like, and so they met in Snowbird, Utah for, you know, on a ski hill. And it's just like, it's such an odd story to tell people. They're kind of like, <laughs> really? And, and, you know, at this point in time, we are dealing with, uh, people's memories that are 20 plus oh, yeah. years old. And so there was an, actually, there was a meeting before the Agile meeting. Uh, it was basically an XP meeting with Kent Beck puts together. Yeah. And I could have sworn that Alistair was there because I actually wrote it in my draft of the book, but Alistair mm-hmm. attended that meeting. And when Alistair read that in the draft of the book, he said, no, no, I wasn't there. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I applaud you for being able to remember what you have in here because it's uh so we we just read your recent you know jeff and i always like to prep and read the books uh that come out whenever we have someone on the podcast so we did read the book and um 
yeah, you got a lot of stories in here. Like, let's, I mean, it's just, just remembering all the details from, you know, the number of client engagements. I mean, I think back to three years ago, even, even a year ago at a client engagement and I'm like, it starts to get fuzzy. So, um, your memory's <laughs> probably better than mine. I don't know. Um, some things come better than others. Yeah. Well, you know, probably the things that leave those impressions, I would imagine. Um, you know, I, I have a question. Yeah, and it's oh, yeah, also, also since the advent of the computer, right? Mm -hmm. And the use of personal computers in the mid 90s, I can go back and find a lot of documents and yep. emails that I don't have for prior eras. Yep. And so my, my memory was, was enhanced by having that documentation. Yeah. Sure. That said, I can't remember anyone's phone number anymore, and I used to be able to, but I just rely on the phone to remember it for me, right? So whether that's good or bad right. for our brains, I'm not sure, but I, I do rely a lot on the digital world to be an extension of my brain because I know I don't have to hold it all. Um, but anyway, I got a question. I So I, I tried to mark up the book. I always like to mark up books for the things that really speak to me from like relate uh, like relating to it. And, you know, Jeff and I, like the, the nice thing about being a business owner, right? You can give yourself your own job title. And we've really gravitated right. towards organizational agility advisor. And we we've for years now, we've chosen that word agility very deliberately because of what's happened to the word agile. In, and it's become right. ubiquitous around the world, right? But it's also been watered down a lot. And, and I love that you speak to that in the book about how agile and agility are different, right? And you speak to how one being more of a mindset versus just the methods and methodologies. But there's also another passage that really spoke to me where you say, and I'm just going to maybe read the quote, but um, when you're talking about agile transformation, right? Because we talk about this all the time. Well, transformation implies that there's an end state, and you stated exactly that way, right? And you say a better descriptor for this evolution is transforming as a verb rather than transformation because, again, it implies an end state um, without that action to it. And I love that, right. right? Like the the note I added to it is like, maybe just call it like agile improvement. Cause like, if we're all being honest with ourselves and we're checking our egos at the door, you can't stop improving. Whether you're an individual, a team or a business, right? You have to continuously improve. So I don't know. I, I really like that passage. Um, I can't remember what part well, of the book me, it the was, word, but. Right, to me, the word agile implies continuous improvement yeah mm -hmm. that it's part of the word and one of the things we could talk about a little bit later but but i i've called some of the things that i see today prescriptive agility yeah which doesn't make any sense yep. right <laughs> as opposed to adaptive agility but it, it it's the, the difference between how you look at methodology and i've been in the methodology business for many many years now and I see something I would call a prescriptive methodology, and I call, have see something I call a generative methodology. And a generative methodology starts small, and you add to it as you need to add things. Whereas a prescriptive methodology says, do all these things, and you'll, you'll come out ahead. And there's some, there's, a, there's a nascent movement going on now that I'm sort of pushing to which basically says, let's go back to the basics yep. and then extend yep. from there into the into new areas. But let's not lose track of the fact that the basics have to do with agility more than any particular agile methodology. Yeah. Yep. We were 
we were just having a conversation earlier today about somebody who was struggling with using AI and like, how do we do this? And they're like, it's the same thing when we went to the cloud. Like we just need a cross-functional team and give them focus and order a list and like have them start working on something and deliver frequently. Like it's not that hard. Like we don't need a separate AI department. Like, like I don't know. So they are the, they are the foundations, right? Like without right. the good foundation, like it's going to be the same problems we've experienced, you know, for decades. Yeah. Well, Alistair has something he calls Shuhari, yep. which is basically yeah. beginners, practitioners, and experts in terms of any particular methodology or practice or method. And so, and having a prescription at, at level one, at the entry level learning, is not necessarily a bad thing. But if you don't learn the mindset behind those, then it's very difficult to advance to the different to the next level, and surely you can't get to be an expert and still think it's you know one two three four five six. Yeah, I remember uh, somebody asking Ron Jeffries one time, who's one of the XP gurus, and this was in a conference, and and Ron was asked, if I do all the twelve practices, am I really an XPer? And Ron said, well, you know, I don't know anymore. He said, I use some of the practices sometimes, I use other practices other times. It kind of depends on the situation. And I thought that was a great answer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so yeah, you go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, so somebody's new to this, right? Like um, new to anything agile. They're coming into because I'm surprised, like, right? It's been decades now and there's so many new people to, that are coming into this. And they're hearing the story, then maybe they're going back and reading it. We're talking about foundations here. Like, what would be like your one piece of advice for somebody who's brand new, kind of like starting off in anything in the agile space? Would it be just to pick one of the one of the methodologies, one of the frameworks, and like just really get into the foundations, or would it be something else? Well, I think that definitely be part of it. I think that you know, it's interesting. Uh, one of the things I've I've learned is there's a whole bunch of people out there who are trying to do agile who have never heard of the manifesto. Yeah. So one of the things I would say is go back to the foundational yeah. values and principles and at least read through them. Uh, and, and it's it's interesting to me that you say, and I've heard this other places, that there are a lot of people new to Agile. Somebody, I had a call from a big company on the West Coast in about 2010, and they said, we'd like to get involved in Agile. And I said, where have you been for 10 years? Yeah. <laughs> now I can say, where have you been for 22 years? Yeah. yeah. But but interestingly enough, I was, I was talking to some people from the Agile Alliance not long ago, and the bulk of those people that come to the Agile Alliance conferences are newbies, you know, 75% maybe. Yep. Uh, it'll be very interesting to me. I'm going to the conference in Orlando next week, and it'll be the first Agile conference I've gone to in probably 10 years. So it'll be great to kind of go and see what's happened in the last 10 years and yeah. meet, meet some of the new people. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I would like to think that, you know, fast forward another decade into the future and maybe at the 30-year mark that everyone has heard of it. But you know what? I don't think it's going to be the case. Like, I I think there, there are going to be companies can still, I a decade from now, discovering it. And maybe they know of it, right? But their organization still hasn't made any significant leap, um, and we might be biased. And my con we're my contention is that they probably won't be around. Yeah, 
Mm-hmm. You know, I yeah. we keep saying that same thing, but we're also we're, we might be biased because we're in the Midwest, so we might not be as bleeding edge as some of the of the Silicon Valley companies, right? Um, I also yeah. think we have a lot of insurance companies in the Midwest. I always like to joke it was a bunch of farmers getting together and we're like, we got to pool our resources and you know reduce risk, and and they all started insurance companies. And of course, they're so risk averse because they're insurance companies with all these roots that like the change part is is hard. But but let's let's look at because I was thinking about insurance companies the other yeah. day. So there was a big big thing in the newspaper in the, in the news recently about the number of insurance companies that are pulling out of Florida. Okay. Because of the the high cost, uh, we had a big fire, a forest fire out here two years ago that destroyed ten a uh, thousand houses in a very uh, upscale area around Boulder, and the floods and the snow in in uh, the West Coast. The Alta ski area in Utah this year had nine hundred and three inches of snow. Wow, that's wow. seventy five feet of snow. Wow. And insurance companies are in for a huge surprise. Yep. They shouldn't be, but they're going to have to move and adapt fairly quickly because we're looking we're looking at an entirely different era of climate change and I think it's on coming on us a hell of a lot faster than we anticipated. And so I think this is going to happen for a lot of companies. By the time you take climate change, the geopolitical situation, COVID, uh, economic change, and you meld all those things together, what comes out is unknown and unknowable. And the only mm-hmm. way you can do something about that is to prepare and and go the next step in agility, which you all call organizational agility, and I'll just refer to it as business agility. Yep. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the next step. And if, if, you don't go, if companies don't go there, they're going to get progressively left behind. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I love I love black swan events will come and they'll knock out those companies, right? So it's probably is those big things that will be the disruptors, and the companies that can handle them, respond, will will take advantage of them. Um, yeah, that's that's a that's a good point. I don't it'll be interesting. You know, you can people have short memories though too. So like if they've they they go down this path, this urgent thing happens, this emergency happens, they rally around this thing, and then they work in a certain way. They create the cross-functional team. They get the right people in the room. They give them focus, and then we go back to normal times, and all of a sudden, we just like do the opposite thing. And so, like, maybe, I don't know. We'll see. Well, I don't know. I'm hopeful that you're right, yeah. Jim, but I, I I think we might also shoot ourselves in the foot a little bit. But so I also we'll think see. one of the key ingredients – and I talk about this in the book when I talk about the, the things that I did work-wise and the things that I did adventure-wise, you know, mountaineering and rock climbing and all that kind of stuff. I think you need people, catalysts in organizations that have that adventurous spirit that are willing to mm-hmm. take chances. And you can't just have one or two at the bottom or one or two at the top. You've got to have people like that at every level. So one of the things I would advise leaders to do if you want to make an agile transformation is you better find some of those adventurous people at every level you're trying to change and en- engage them. I I did a very large agile transition one time for a company, and then we left. And uh, about six months after we left, I found out that they put a manager in charge of the continuing agile transition, who was a micromanager. Yep. And I'm thinking they they didn't get the whole message. Yep. 
So you talk in the, I think it's towards the end of the book where you talk about cons- uh, courageous executives are kind of like the, um, I don't like the next thing that's going to disrupt organizations. Is, is that kind of what you meant when you're talking about courageous leaders at different levels? And tell, can you just expand on that a little bit more what that means? Yeah, I mean, I use the courageous executives as the name for the second era because I felt that in the early agile years, it was more of a team focused transition. You know, you worked on this team here or this team there in an organization, but there really wasn't much spreading throughout the organization. And then about 2004-2005, we began to get heads of development, IT directors, CIOs, VPs of engineering coming to us and saying, we want to impact the whole organization. We want to change and bring Agile into the whole organization. And, and that really took a lot of courage and and, and risk-taking at that level, particularly if they really bought into it. So, for example, Syex, the company's story I talk about in the book, mm-hmm. their executive, they had an IT manager and they had a product uh, director. And after we worked on the software side of that company for about a year and a half, the product director says, we're going to do the next version of our uh, medical instrument using Agile. And we, we put everybody in a room and we basically worked, and that was a hardware and software gig. And that was a huge challenge and a huge courage by this guy. So part of that courage is kind of adventurous, being willing to, to take that step and risk, risk some things. And one of the things, in a, kind of an analogy to mountaineering, is you don't learn about how to mitigate risk until you actually do it. Mm-hmm. And you can't. You can read all these books about weather conditions and ice conditions and rock conditions, and but until you get there, until you've until you've had to make a decision, do I go on or do I go back? You know, it's it's lightning and thundering, and I better get off this damn mountain pretty pretty quick. Yep. <laughs> And you learn from that experience, and you have to do the same thing as you as you're making some transitions, be they agile or other kinds of transitions. You you learn from taking smaller steps. You don't want to take a huge step, although sometimes you have to do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I so we're always nudging our our clients to to act in the moment and look for those micro changes because if everybody does that, then you can you know whether it's grassroots or not, you can make a lot of change happen even with large organizational impediments. I used to have a talk called a boat rockers toolkit. And I always like, I basically always refer to myself when I'm telling stories about my past as like a boat rocker. Like I like to rock the boat. Like if you're in a canoe to give everyone that slightly uneasy feeling like, Hey, I'm challenging the status quo. And we just taught a class this week with some younger, uh, a younger audience, like uh, people in a program just out of high school. Yeah. Just out of high school. And we're teaching them scrum and, they were asking for advice and I was like, just don't stop challenging the status quo. I was kind of like, back to your adventure, right. like go out and change things. Like do not accept your organization's current state as okay. Like, and, and it, right. it so your, your, um, your passage in here, it's so funny. When I used to work at a Fortune 500 and I was part of a PMO at the time, but we were like spinning up agile stuff in stealth mode. <laughs> and we were we were essentially like trying to deconstruct our project management office from the inside out. And it was a very 
crazy time because we were like kind of putting ourselves out of jobs, but we were also reshaping what we were doing. Anyway, some of my PM colleagues, they would joke about how I was Don Quixote and I was tilting at these windmills. And I was reading your book and then you referenced from one of your 2002 (laughs) books, right? Like this passage where you talk about that. So then I was like, okay, is this coincidence? Or maybe what happened is my colleagues read your book (laughs) and then they were like, hey, this is Chad. But anyway, I it's funny that I they used to basically always, you know, call me Don Quixote and my manager's like, Chad, you gotta pick your battles. And I'd be like, I wanna pick all of them. Like I'm gonna tilt at every windmill. So I don't know. Not everybody has that, um, I guess, throughout the organization, but I totally agree. Like, the more you can build sort of a a group of people who are passionate about making those small changes, I think it makes it makes working in those organizations more exciting as a as an employee. And I, whether the organization knows it or not, you're helping them, right? Um, right. They might not see it that way initially, but I love it. I think we need more change agents and people willing to challenge the status quo. And and hopefully we have leaders, yeah. courageous leaders, more of them in the future, who actually lead the way on that, right? They they encourage Correct. everyone to challenge the status quo. Because if you're not, again, you have an ego problem or you have a blind spot. Like staying still from 2023 and beyond and whatever year it is, we can just say that year and say beyond, it, you have to be changing, right? Yeah. All right. So in your book, Jim, you talk a lot about, you know, the past before agile, the last 23 years, but now like, what's the future? So if you had to answer the question, the future of agile is, how would you answer that question? Well, that's an interesting question. And I've got more than once, as you can might imagine, like what's AI going to do? And when I started writing the last chapter of the book, I started thinking about, well, maybe I ought to try to do some predicting. And then I thought, well, with everything that's changing, that's probably not going to work out very well for me (laughs) in the long run. And so I really looked at this as what I intended to do with that book is to help people prepare for the future. That history isn't, you don't look at history in order to predict the future, but in order to prepare for the future. And so Mm -hmm. that, if you look at a future and you think it's going to be very disruptive and disrupted, and the, and the speed of change is going to increase. I've been using recently a, a kind of a clock going around as the rate of change. And in the 80s, it went like this. And in the 90s, it went like this. And in the 2000s, it went like this. And now you can't even see it spinning. Yeah. And and that's happening quite a bit. I mean, just the thing we were talking about a little while ago, the climate changes. Uh, I think things are happening now that people weren't predicting were going to happen for 20 or 30 years. Yep. So I think I think this whole idea of agility is pretty important. Yeah, I I love that. I, that was actually one of the highlights from the book that preparing for the future um, instead of predicting it. And I I yeah and, I love it. And I yeah I I think I mean I I thought about this a little bit the other day, and I thought about okay if that's true if 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 really I'm thinking about helping people prepare for the future then I ought to have something to say about AI and not predict where it's going, but give people a little historical perspective. When I started working in the mid-60s, I was in engineering school, and we 
we built circuits with transistors that were about the big of my end of my little finger. Today, you have 5 billion transistors on a chip. Yeah. Back then, if you could have had a gigabyte of memory on an IBM 360-40, which you couldn't, there was, you couldn't put a gigabyte on it, it would have cost $734 million. Yep. Whereas it would cost 5 or $10 today. So mm -hmm. you had an enormous change in technology. And so you might think that that put a lot of people out of business. But what happened, or out of jobs, but what happened was it increased the, the usage areas for computers exponentially. So what happened was you actually increased the, the number of jobs exponentially as you went over to over, over that time. And I think what you're going to see is the same thing that happened before, which is you may have to have a different set of skills. And so you really need to think about a lifelong learning and, and how to do that as an individual, as in a company. And I was interested, I, I went to visit the National Arboretum in Washington, D.C. a couple of months ago. And there was a bonsai exhibit. And just exquisite bonsai trees in about three different buildings. There was a U.S. building, there was a China building, there was a Japanese building. And every one of those bonsai trees had a little label on it. In training since 1875. In training since 1654, it, it was incredible that uh, to think back that these things had actually been involved yeah. for that long. But I think that's the kind of learning we're going to have to do is is continual learning because the same jobs are, are you know, you won't be doing the same things. When I when I started, our technical layer was we had two technical layers. We had an operating system and we had a compiler. That was it. And now, how many components do you have in a in a project? You got yep. tons. Yeah. Right. So that's it's awesome. So I I'm a computer programmer. I was I I not allowed to touch keyboards anymore. But um, <laughs> but I, you know I was exposed to some of those early languages. Right. Just it, from an academic standpoint, when I was in college, like Assembly and Fortran and and COBOL. But then my first programming class, I believe, was C++. So I was already spoiled, right? Like I was already kind of like <laughs> into the object oriented and then I was into Java right after right. that. So, but I, so my grandfather, um, I'm not going to share too much, but he, he works, he, he used to work at Lockheed Martin in the seventies and eighties. And so he's told me some really cool stories, um, about how, you know, testing missiles and how their QA processes worked then. Right. And I haven't written them down, so I can't remember all the details, but it sounded fascinating. And, Part of me being a, like being a programmer, I actually really did appreciate the history part of this book, and just you know I know what a punch card is. I've I've heard of it, but I've never I've never interacted with one. And I remember my grandfather telling me about uh, very similar stories about punch cards, and, and we've talked about it on the phone, you know, in the last decade or two. But so you worked. Uh, I'm long winded sometimes. I apologize. So you <laughs> you worked you worked. On the Apollo missions at NASA, right? That's part of the book. Right. And for all the listeners, right, you can go out and read some of the cool stories that you mentioned. But what I'm dying to know for the podcast, you know, you mentioned some cool pieces of that time. Is there any story that you didn't put in the book that you either considered or, you know, a cool story about working 
on that program? Well, this is a story not exactly working on that program, but it's a, it's a story about technology of that era. So who, here we are shooting off Titan rockets. The, and those were the ones that carried the military payloads back in those days, the military satellites. And so that's why it was at an Air Force base, because a lot of these were, were military-grade rockets. So in the early days, they wanted to make sure that the rocket didn't go up and head inland, mm-hmm. that it went up and headed out towards the ocean, because they had some rockets blow up that headed inland. And that's probably not good because Florida has residents and, you know, those kinds of people. And so what they did is they they put an Air Force officer officer on one side of the missile and he had a wooden frame with a wire running up it. And, And the missile needed to climb that wire and go out to the right rather than out to the left. And there's another Air Force officer 90 degrees away who had the same kind of thing. And the missile was supposed to go straight up the wire and not veer left to right. Okay. So that was the technology. So that we replaced that technology with a strip chart, strip chart recorder. And so it was supposed to go up the strip chart recorder and go this way. The first time they used it, it went up. It went the wrong way. They blew the missile up. And they found out they'd reversed the leads on the oh. instrument. <laughs> <laughs> And it was actually going in the right direction. Oh my goodness! I mean, that's like the that ones and zeros binary on-off switches right there, right? Like that's that's like about as basic as you can get right there, right? Reversing the leads and and before I mean, there's just multitudes of stories that went around Cocoa Beach during that period of time. But you know what? The astronauts on the Mercury program were the most concerned about in terms of their safety was the gantry. It was so rickety that they were afraid to ride up in the elevator of the gantry because they were sure it was going to fall down. (laughs) Now, once they got on the rocket, they felt pretty good. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, that that tops that. that, So that's why I wanted to hear a story from you, because the the stakes of that, right, what you just said, like rockets exploding inland due to such a simple thing, right? but still yet a mistake you can make. Like, I don't know, like, I'm sure you have, being a programmer, right, for many decades, you probably have all kinds of stories. I know mine probably isn't as fun, but one of my first big jobs programming was web development, and I was doing this conference registration system. Have I told this on the podcast before, Jeff? I don't think you have. So I was doing this, and I was new. I was very green, and it was a small company, and they kind of gave me they gave me a long leash. Like they gave me a lot of autonomy and freedom. And so I was like working on this conference registration system and it was for this healthcare company in California. And we were launching and we had tested everything and we were all set. And I'd never really coded something to interact with credit card transactions. So I think it was VeriSign that I had to interface with to get the, you know, to run the cards. Anyway, I just saw the different statuses that you could do for the credit card call. And one of them was called credit. And I was like, oh yeah, credit for credit card. <laughs> so <laughs> so I have this all coded and it's tested and we launch and we start going live and conference registrations start coming in and everything's working great. And then all of a sudden the phone rings and they're like, yeah, it's funny. Like all the people registering for our conference, it's actually refunding them the money instead of 
charging them the money. <laughs> and I was like, like we had to figure out, you know, right away my colleagues like looked into it and we we found the issue right away. But, you know, yeah. registrations were happening and my manager, you know, looking back, I only realize now how cool it was, but she was like, "Okay, you made the mess, you clean it up." So, here's the phone number of the client, you call the client and run damage control, figure out how we, you know, get the money back, charge them the right way. And it was a really good experience for me, but just, you know, yeah. another silly mistake, right? Everything, we tested everything. I just, you know, chose some stupid status for the credit card transaction that was actually refunded. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, now looking back, it's like, but, why didn't I know that? But you just don't know what you don't know. But there are tons of stories like that. I think it was in the 70s, somebody made a, a change to uh, the Social Security system, which, which caused some differences in the checks. And they caught it right away, the fact that the wrong number was on the checks. But they had to have an act of Congress before they could change oh, yeah. the code. Yeah. Oh, wow. So there are all kinds of stories. And there's still stories that um, that get, you know, maybe not as not as uh, well-known as those. Yeah. But there's many stories. and But you're right. When I started out software development, I, I did everything. You know, I did yeah. the analysis, I did the design, I did the coding, I did the testing, yep. and I did the client interface, yep. and nobody was looking over my shoulder. Yep. Yeah, you could, you could go, you could write a lot of code before anyone ever saw. Sometimes nobody saw it. There, there were times I would That's write right. stuff, and this was even early two thousands, where I would write things, and maybe I'd have a peer review, but not all the time. Um, one of the funniest little quips in the in the book was I was talking to Tom DeMarco, who's uh, kind of a guru of structured development for one of them. And he was talking about when he was at Bell Labs in the set, in his, I guess this was in the 70s, they were trying to figure out how to do better coding. And he said he actually ran across a program one time where the variable names were vegetables. Yeah, yeah. I remember reading that passage. <laughs> You also explained something for me too, because I worked I worked in some Fortune 500s where, I mean, I don't know if most of the world knows this. We tell our people all the time in classes, but a lot of the claims processing software that still runs today in companies that we all probably know of, and a lot of financial trading applications, they still run on COBOL code written in the 1970s. Yep. Like, Cause we encounter this with some of our clients. So it's out there. And it speaks to IBM's iSeries too. Like they still release updates for those things. So like it's 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 been a workhorse. Not easy to change, but you answered something for me that I have always. Whenever I worked on an AS four hundred at one of the, my when I was actually employed by a, mm -hmm. a company, the variable names were always like so cryptic and short. And you made this reference in the book that a lot of programmers who learned COBOL came from Fortran which had a, I believe you said six character limit for variable names. And they just carried that practice yeah. over into COBOL. Right. So you'd have all these short variable names that weren't descriptive, right? They weren't, they didn't make sense. Some people, you know, pick fruits for variable names that are, so <laughs> I, that made so much, I was like, oh, that makes so much sense now why I wouldn't, I countered that over and over again yeah. when you'd sift through code. Um, and and in, the, in those days, Maintaining somebody else's code was just horrendous. Yeah. yeah the other mm -hmm. the other cool thing, you know, Jeff and I always talk about 
you know, back to you saying you did everything. I love the term full stack developer. I don't even know why we have to use it because I think it's an indication that we took a, took a turn for the worse, right? Where we started specializing. And I think you talk about this too, right? Where there's, you know, no. you shouldn't have to wait weeks to months for a database change, right? There's a reason there's an alter statement. Like just let us make the <laughs> database changes. And yeah. my earlier jobs, I did do most of most everything. But then when I got into larger corporations, there was a de the database department and there were architects. Well, what happened? It was harder to interface. Right. Right. What happened, of course, was that was a legacy of waterfall development. Yep. Because yep. first of all, you separated the boxes yep. and then you specialized with people in each of those boxes and then you communicated via documentation. And mm -hmm. so the agile movement was really not against documentation. It was for collaboration yep. and to say that you really needed to collaborate and the documentation that that, that you needed to to record what you'd done during the collaboration was fine, but don't substitute. I was at a very large company in New Jersey one time, and the architects had just issued an enterprise architecture document that was supposed to carry them into the future. And so I went down to the development staff and I said, what do you think of the new architecture document? And they said, well, we don't understand it. We just put it on the shelf. And I went back to the architecture guys and said, how many, how many meetings have you got set up to try to explain this, this architecture to the developers? And they said, well, none. It ought to be obvious. Yep. <laughs> and it obviously yep. wasn't. Right. Yeah. I mean, I also related a lot to your project management stories. There's a phrase in your book that you say, I think it's in relationship essentially to a project can be, you know, waterfall project can go wrong for months to years before you really discover, right? Because you're not, you don't have that agile feedback right. loop. And right. I had to highlight it because it just made me laugh so much about my past. But it, you can fake, here's your quote, you can fake the completion of a requirements document, but you can't fake tested running code. And I just thought that phrase, like there's so much into that one little <laughs> sentence. Like just think about the number of requirements documents that, you know, the way you say it have been faked around the world over the last several decades, you know, cause they don't mean anything. Yeah. If you don't, if you can't translate it, if you can't understand it and turn it into action, it doesn't matter. Right. And right. same thing with architecture, with, with requirements. So I don't know that one, that one made me laugh. Yeah. I was doing a, another project with a company down in Arizona one time and the architect said, you know, it's going to take, he, he was really into UML. And so he said, I said, well, how long will it take you to do the architecture work? And he said, oh, about three months. And I said, you have two weeks. Yep. <laughs> he said, we're going to, we're going to start in two weeks. And he grumbled and I thought, but he had something together two weeks in. And so I, I asked him to make a presentation to the development people. So he did, and then I could see these blank stares. And so I said, I asked the development people, I said, do you understand that? They said, no. Luckily, this architect could code. And so I sat him down and he showed him how he was gonna code this and the lights began to, come, began to come on. And that's the kind of interaction that you've gotta have. You can't do it just through documentation. Yeah. Yep. yeah. It's 
almost like architecture needs to be something that's facilitated nowadays instead of something that like one person has up in their ivory tower and then hands down to other people. Right. right. I don't know if that's ever been the case where that worked well, but um, that that's just, you know, it's about getting shared understanding and alignment. Right. Like that's what it really and, comes down to. That's right. And you have the same thing between the requirements of design and design and programming and programming and testing. You have the same kind of issues. Yep, exactly. And, and that's really what the Agile Manifesto was speaking to. You know, I, I just continue to see people talk about the fact that Agile, you know, advocates no documentation. And I saw that on a LinkedIn inquiry or post three or four months ago. And I wrote back, it wrote down, and I said, these were the same issues we were talking about in 2002. Can't you come up with something new? Oh... <laughs> <laughs> uh. All right. Um, so, Jim, just kind of wrapping up here, like, is there one question that we didn't ask you that you wish we would have asked you? Well, I will. I'll talk about one thing here. The question would be, if you could rewrite the manifesto, how would you do differently? Okay. And... I think I think that there are some things that probably need some clarification. For example, there's been a misconception of the word over. Mm. Individuals and interactions over processing tools. It doesn't stay instead of. It says over, which means that individuals and interactions are really, really important. Tools and method, processes are really important. But the, if you've got your choice, Take the better people over better processes and tools any day because the good people will will excel in the face of having second-tier tools. But mm -hmm. the people with, with first-level tools that don't know how to do requirements or do design or whatever are not going to fare very well. Yep. And, and so people have said to, to take that word out. And the answer to that to, for me for me is... No, it deserves to be in there because it helps you differentiate. It helps you make decisions mm -hmm. when you really get down to it. Is do you going to try to put every little nick, nickel and dime thing in the contract, or are you going to depend on close collaboration with your with your client? Yep. And if you try to put nickel and dime into your contract, you're going to end up in court, and it's going to it's not going to be good for for any party. So work right. on the collaboration. Uh, so, so those are the kinds of things I wouldn't rewrite the manifesto, but some of those things need to be continually kind of clarified because people tend to misinterpret them. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. It's great. So kind of as we're wrapping up here, then is, is there anything you want to plug to our listeners or promote other than your new book? Not really, except I'm sort of beginning to challenge the new agilist or the people that have come before and try and trying to say why do you think the agile movement has been so important for 20 plus years what is it about the manifesto and what has happened after them why has it been so successful because there's no question but it has been and so if we're going to move forward we have to answer the question what do we keep what endures and what needs to change? And I think that Agile probably needs some extensions and some new things. I mean, for example, 
in the original manifesto, when XP people were working, they were only kind of hinting at DevOps. You know, they, they talked about integrations, but they really didn't talk about DevOps until several years later. And so those are the kinds of extensions to Agile that I think have made it, have kept it fresh. Yeah. And those are the kinds of things we need to think about. How is AI going to help us be more agile? How yeah. is it going to promote agility rather than we need a new manifesto? Uh, I can tell you there, the, the 17 people that wrote it could never get together today and agree on anything. <laughs> Thanks, That's thank probably why it hasn't changed, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love that. I mean, I think I think the way you even refer to that in the book is like, you know, I think or you said Agile has stood the test of time now that it's not just a fad. It's a trend. And it, I think right. it is going to whether we change the word over the next five decades, it if you really just comes down to dollars and cents, you have an organization, you're trying to move some cause, mission, purpose forward in the world. It just makes business sense to do it in the most adaptable agile way you can, right? Like it, so I think it's just good business overall, but it is pretty remarkable. I mean, I'm sure for you, especially, right? Cause you, you hint like none of you could predict the future. Nobody knew how big right. some of these frameworks and, and the, the word was going to be. And here we are. And it's like, there's, there's <laughs> job titles with the word agile in it everywhere around the world, right? There's millions right. of people around the world who are speaking this language and still, uh, which is also speaking to the trend, discovering it for the first time yet, two decades later. Right. So it's, it's, and, it's awesome. And with something that, that is that widespread, I always go back to Jerry Weinberg's law of raspberry jam, yep. which is the further you spread it, the thinner it gets. So mm. it's kind of thin out there on the edge, edges. And so, sure. you know, the, what we're looking to the new generation for and what I, I see coming along are people that are, that are beginning to make it thicker again. And that's a good thing. Yeah, I love it. If you found value in today's episode, share this with a friend. Until next time, get agile and stay agile.